Welcome, welcome, one and all, to yet another new episode of the What the Niche podcast. And as always, I am your exuberant host, Andrew Morris. Before we jump right into things today, I have a couple quick announcements. First, please head over to the website and check out the new layout. And while you're there, check out some merch at the store or possibly even become a Patreon member to support this show. Second, I'd like to remind all of my listeners to check out the comedic sketch show, which Obama calls an absolute riot. That's John Obama, just so as not to confuse anyone. This uproariously funny show is called What the Skit, and you can find all of the episodes on any of your major podcast platforms. Finally, I'd like to give a loving shout out to my buddies Brian Robman and Jeremy Woodring, who host the Dastardly Dingoes podcast. Currently, they're in the middle of their third season, and I am thoroughly impressed with how much it has grown. Please go check out their incredible show, which features plenty of wonderfully talented people every week. I've attached the link in the episode description. Also, while you're at it, check out Brian Rodman's comic book series, Memoirs of an Angel. Currently, he just closed out yet another successful Kickstarter campaign to fund the newest issue. This series is absolutely fabulous, and it deserves all of your support. That's all of the announcements I have for this week, so let's get right into this week's episode. In this week's episode, we will be pedaling and coasting through the intense world of bicycling. In the animal kingdom, humans are way down the list of athletic ability. But do you know what happens when you give a human a bike? We eclipse all of nature, millions of years of evolution, and even cars and jet engines. We become the most efficient animal on the planet. 60k on 100 year old bike, some going. We become free. Free to roam, free to soar, free to fly. This is just like a roaring through paradise, isn't it? That's why bikes are so blooming great. Why do you cycle? Why not? Fuck it, the world's too short. And yeah, why do it? fast way by a car, I guess if you've got two wheels by bicycle, you can see everything at a slower pace, so you get double the, double the good. So I like cycling because I think it's the best, the sport I do best, and uh, I, know, I don't know, I like it. <laughs> Why are you cycling? Well, it's the better, better way to go from one way to another, because we feel free. Eyes, hyp- hypnosis. Why do you cycle? For me, it's an open-eye hypnosis for years, always. I love it. So we are traveling for discover people. And to get time for ourselves. Why do you cycle? Yeah, it's fun. And Kyrgyzstan is a very beautiful country and Sonkul is the best. Insulated cityscapes remove ancient dangers. 
Daily survival now requires nothing more than a drive to your local Trader Joe's. Leaving intrinsic satisfaction as a glimmering memory. Glowing screens radiating vapid distractions. Humans living in a state of fear and loneliness. Perpetuated by a media which thrives on our insecurities and need to consume. Inundated with the daily grind. Stress numbed by prescriptions and vices. Yet many of us are merely missing the connections to the thing right outside the window. For thousands of years, mankind survived by connecting with nature and the world. We lived and died based upon our ability to forage and hunt. Every day was filled with the reward of survival. Completion of shelters with the gathering of food creating small doses of dopamine. We are now separated from those tiny daily achievements, which led to real fulfillment. Rather than oftentimes working meaningless jobs and lives wrought with no sense of direction or enjoyment, individuals could benefit from reuniting with our ancestral roots climbing the steep ridges on a hillside, watching the light flutter off the wings of a butterfly, gazing upon the sunlight, kissing branches, creating shimmering streams of light in the sky. Whether it be a simple leisurely stroll through the open air or two wheels of adrenaline-filled exploration guiding you across the uneven terrain, Amidst the leaves, dirt, insects, and the great outdoors in general, the weight of the world feels as though it loses its strength. Staring upward, with the canopy allowing piercing shards of the day to cast rays of energy across your face. In that moment, it becomes difficult to deny the bond we have with nature. During our fast-paced lives, Maybe we can find more time to get lost in the beauty of the space just outside our office, bedroom, bus, or car window. Finding ourselves looking up at the same sky as our ancestors, breathing in the same air, and realizing we are all connected. And that brings me to today's guest. His name is Joshua Schaus. He is a father, nurse, outdoorsman, and cycling enthusiast. During our conversation, we discussed Joshua's draw to any and to all things which might make normal people feel pretty uneasy. His life as an ER nurse seems to directly correlate to his interests in mountain biking, cave exploration, and to all things that may be considered death-defying. We also explore the notion of going after things you really want in life and not taking anything for granted. Joshua is someone who has achieved a lot of things in his seemingly short life, and I hope his drive and passion is infectious for my listeners. Hopefully the overarching message of get out there and get it resonates with as many of you as possible. And here 
is our delightful conversation. All right. Um, my name is Josh Schaus. Um, I am a lover of all things outdoors. Um, mostly right now I'm riding my bike a whole lot. Um, I've been only actually riding a bike for probably f around five years now. Um, I started out riding, uh, uh, a mountain bike and, um, here recently have transferred over to, um, riding gravel, um, uh, which is essentially a, uh, if a mountain bike and a road bike had a baby, um, it's kind of a gravel bike. It's a big tired drop bar bike. Um, and, uh, I've, um, transferred over to that, been training for a lot of, um, endurance races, uh, for this year, um, COVID permitting, of course. Um, and, uh, but I've got, um, quite a few mountain bike endurance races behind me. I've done a hundred miler out in, uh, Oregon. That was pretty tough. Um, I've done a hundred miles here at the Red River Gorge. That was pretty tough. Um, and did pretty well in both of those. Um, other outdoor stuff I enjoy is um, uh, running a whole lot, trail running specifically. I'm not a uh, super fond of road running just because uh, cars and those things. So um, do a lot of trail running. Um, and then um, the other big thing I like to do is uh, underwater cave diving. So like not the, uh, so the, imagine the caves are full of water and you take scuba gear and you go into those. Um, that's something else I enjoy doing. Um, took a lot of, takes a lot of training and a bunch of other stuff that takes a long time, but after you get it all done, it's pretty good. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun, super unique. There's few things I've ever experienced that are quite like, um, cave diving. So, um, I, uh, full-time I'm a nurse uh, I work in an ER we see both uh, pediatric and adult patients so it's cool that I get both sides of the spectrum um, I've been a nurse for almost five years now it'll be five years in June um, have always worked in an ER um, I have um, a couple other degrees I have a degree in neuroscience um, and then a degree in psychology I double majored to get both of those um, and that was my first um, two degrees. I went to when I got out of high school. Um, I uh, did a lot of research and with drugs, and um, did some animal uh, lab stuff. Um, looked at uh, reward responses with methamphetamine and a bunch of other crazy stuff like that. Um, I did an honors thesis where I took brains and cut them in half and diet them and looked for these receptors and all this other stuff. It was really cool, but, um, I ended up not wanting to go the PhD route. So, um, jumped into nursing cause full time is three days a week and the jobs are plentiful and, uh, allow me to be able to do a lot more outdoor stuff. So, um, I can have four days a week to do cool, fun stuff. And, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty nice. It affords me that, uh, ability to feel, I guess, free, but still have a full-time job. So um, right. I would say that, that is, that is me uh, in a nutshell. So <clears throat> with that intro, I'd like to thank our two new sponsors, North Face and Patagonia. Uh, you basically, that was your, you were a living commercial for that. 
<laughs> uh, I was like, damn, this dude should rock that North Face boggin that he's wearing right now. I'm like, you yeah. earned that shit. <laughs> You're like the one dude that's living that life. You're like, yeah, I'm that guy in the picture. <laughs> yeah, they're advertising to me and yeah. Amy over here who wears it to the mall. Yeah. Um, are you? I, that, that's awesome that they sponsor I, both of no, those companies. Oh, they don't. Oh, <laughs> well, well. Dude. <laughs> I was like, dude, that's fantastic. Like, no, like okay. man, can you get me the in? Yeah. You probably yeah. have like Patagonia scrubs. Like you are living the life 24 seven. That would be nice. Uh, yeah, that would be nice. They, they don't, they frown upon me when I wear my um, North face quarter zips to work instead of a scrub top. But like they put me in charge all the time. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm in charge now. So I'll wear this if I want to. It keeps and, me uh, company. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It makes me happy, you know. If you're gonna put me in the danger zone, you're in the in the emergency room. Let me have yeah. a, a couple little perks, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's not so, asking too much. Um, you have made this conversation difficult. Um, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, um, because normally I like to frame these conversations around one thing. And as uh, my listeners heard, he's into about 47 different things. Um, so I had to, I was like doing a tally with him before I was like, all right, let's calculate your time per, <laughs> per hobby, you know? And, uh, I, I follow him on Instagram. We have, uh, we're, uh, met each other through a mutual friend. And uh, he's like, you should talk to this guy. I think he'd be pretty interesting. And I think he's right. Uh, and I'm interested to see. And there's a question in my brain that I'm going to come back to because uh, I, I saw a correlation when you were talking about a couple of the things in that intro. Um, but I want to focus. I think we're going to mold this around the fact that you're such a bike enthusiast. Uh, your Instagram is just plastered with it uh and i'm always intrigued to see just how many different places you ride and so on and so forth and um i'd like to see you later rest maybe some of the assumptions that people might make about you as being a bike enthusiast uh, i you know i rode a road bike for a little bit a little bit probably not nearly on the level as yours i would never get a century ride in i don't want to punish myself that way uh, <laughs> so i'm curious to see what assumptions people might make about you as being somebody who is a bike person so outdoorsy and so on um i think one of the biggest things about being like a i don't know a cycling guy is uh you have to be athletic and you don't actually have to be per se because um, I did absolutely zero sports in high school. Um, I was never a um, sports person. Um, I, I watched the occasional UK versus UofL basketball or uh, stuff like that, but I did zero sports. And so um, I kind of came upon cycling actually from, I was trail running for a while before I came upon cycling. And when I would run the trails, I'd have to get over on the side and watch these dudes on bikes go past me. And I'm like, God, they look like they're having so much more fun than I am. And I was like, I got to get a bike. So um, I uh, eventually bought a mountain bike um, and uh, was at first blown away at how expensive bikes can cost. And <laughs> yeah. um, that can be, that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself. But um, you don't have, one of the biggest things is uh, that that's a good misconception there is like a lot of people are big about, oh, I don't, I want to ride um, a mountain bike. I want to ride these trails, but a mountain bike is, you know, $3,000. And though that's true, it's not necessary. You don't have to spend that much money. I, I say this 
probably four times a week that the best bike is the one you're excited to get out on and ride. And whether that be a $5,000 full suspension, full carbon fancy bike, or that be a mongoose from the Walmart or a secondary secondhand bike used, like you don't have to have the best of the best to go out and have fun on these, on the trails. Um, so I bought a, you know, what I could afford at the time, which was a decent, what we call a hard tail. So meaning that it's got suspension on the front, no suspension on the back though. Um, and, uh, I rode that for a little over a year until I was like, you know, I think I'm, I've, I've got down a lot of the skills and stuff. Let's upgrade. And then I upgraded to something that was, you know, a little bit more expensive. Um, at the time it, kind of was mind blowing. Um, but I still have that bike almost for five years now or well, sorry, four years. So let that, you know, kind of be a, you know, you buy something that's on the higher end and, uh, it'll take care of you. And you, as long as you take care of it. So, um, but again, coming back to the whole athletic thing, um, a lot of people come into cycling, um, at where, like with maybe little to no, um, athletic, ability. And, uh, and that's okay. Like you can literally start from nothing and just, you have fun and you take it as you want to. Um, my wife, she rides and, um, she doesn't take it quite as seriously as I do. Um, but she enjoys it just as much. Um, I have my best friend. He's like my brother. Um, he has gone on a, a journey of weight loss. He was at his heaviest around 430 pounds. And uh, he's now right hovering right around 300. Um, we, you and I had spoke briefly about David Goggins and, and that guy, he kind of changed his life. But um, my friend, Michael, he bought him a nice uh, gravel bike and uh, he rides and he's your, he's definitely not your stereotypical guy that you would expect to be riding a bike and uh, you know but he's he's out there hammering it out man and he is um having fun and loving it and uh if nothing else man it's just an avenue that gets you into um you know just a healthier state of mind and uh you know healthier uh fitness level you know so um you know i think that there's a lot of people may not want to dive into riding bikes for the fear of the expense that it costs to get a bike. Um, I have still talked to some people that are like, I don't, I haven't ridden a bike in 10 years. I don't know if I can ride a bike. And uh, you know, it's one of those things that's okay too, you know, but you come into it, like lower your expectations and just have fun with it. You know, don't come in expecting to, you know, be doing some double black diamond stuff <laughs> right off the bat. You know, that's, that's unreasonable. So uh, you know, that's, come at it, come into it where you're at and just be willing to, um, take it slow and enjoy the ride, you know? Yeah. So what, what exactly got you into what, 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 uh, drove you to want to dip your foot into the water, you know, cause as we've seen and heard rather, uh, you have all these other deferring interests. So what brought you into the world of cycling? Um, yeah. So like it started, like I kind of briefly mentioned, I was running trails a whole lot and was kind of, I don't know if I was getting burnt out or what, but I mean, I was running a ton and was just maybe looking for something to change it up with. Um, and, uh, I was, I saw the people on bikes. I was like, that looks like a blast. I live pretty close to the parklands, which is, has some pretty nice trails and stuff there. Um, and, uh, was that kind of like, got me interested. So we, uh, me and my wife, we went to a bunch of different bike shops and 
got in, fell in love with this place uh, called On Your Left. They're great guys. The the owner there, he spends almost all of his off days working on trails. He was super passionate. I think that that definitely had an impact on like my, I don't know, um, outlook on bikes. Cause like they were super welcoming and they were super down to earth. Um, and non-judgmental of, you know, I, 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 you know, I went in there and stated my ignorance. I was like, look guys, I know zero about bikes. Um, but I, I'm interested and I would like to learn. And, uh, they, you know, met me where I was and, um, talked to me. We, I ended up ordering a bike from them and, uh, and it was just something that I can like do alongside running. So like for a lot of the times, what I would do was I'd go run trails with the bike in my car and then I, you know, would maybe run half the distance and then whip the bike out, change, change my shoes or whatever, hop on the bike and then, you know, ride for an hour or so after that. And this was, um, I guess like, let me uh, maybe back up a second. And like, when I tell, I said earlier how I came to the table with zero athletic ability, um, I didn't start running. I got, I'm a, I'm five, seven and, uh, got up to about 200 pounds and that was all non-athletic eating whatever I wanted kind of deal. So, um, I, when I hit that 200 pound mark, I was like, dude, something's got to change. And, um, I'd had a little bit of running here and there and stuff, but I hadn't really done anything. And so, um, more so at the point when I picked the bike up, I was looking, I'd lost some weight, but I was looking for something to like, I saw myself getting burnt out and I didn't want to, you know, get burnt out on running and just stop. So I was like, maybe biking will be, something that will, you know, I don't know, re, uh, re up my desire to continue, you know, losing weight and stuff. And it did, I mean, in a way that I'd never would have anticipated. I've met some of the coolest people in my life through bikes and I've ridden in some of the most amazing places that I've ever imagined on a bike. And, um, I wish like when people ask me, you know, why, like you, you do this and why do you do it and stuff? It's like, if I could just share with you, like, the feeling you get when, you know, I'm doing, we're riding this super unique place or something like it's unbelievable, man. It's unimaginable that like these places exist and you can ride a freaking bike through them. You know, it's, it's awesome. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's I think it's probably important to mention too. Louisville's kind of a special place Uh, with that. I think that it's pretty friendly for your, uh, your be- beginning bikers and things of that nature, because I was much like you, you know, I, I rode BMX bikes and I would go down to the skate park and ride, uh, you know, I could dip into bowls and do a couple little cool tricks, but nothing crazy. Um, and then I just kind of didn't really do anything with bikes for years. And then, uh, right around, I think, uh, about six years ago, maybe five, six years ago, uh, I started riding again. And much like you, I didn't really know anything about, mountain bikes about I, I bought a mountain bike first and i think Louisville's special because we have a couple really nice local shops that mm-hmm. are really helpful uh i think you have um shellers i bought my first bike there those people were incredibly mm-hmm. helpful uh i was really thankful for those people and like you i got into an entry-level bike uh only sus- suspension on the front um and, you know, it was like 600 bucks, which is, you know, not near that $3,000 mark or sure. whatever you need for a really decent bike, you know, but it got me through. I enjoyed mm-hmm. riding it. it. It made me, gave me something new to be excited about. And we have several parks throughout the city that you can utilize that Cherokee park, uh, has some nice trails, probably not as uh beginner friendly. I would think that 
to me, that one's a little more intermediate. Yeah. Uh, we got Waverly. Uh, Waverly is mm-hmm. a great beginning uh, trail. Yeah. Uh, super fun. Uh, and then, of course, the Parklands has something for everybody, and it's mm-hmm. a wonderful bike track out there. Yeah. And uh, so I think we may be lucky compared to a lot of other places that we are such a park-friendly area. Uh, you know, and just to give people uh, some history of Louisville, uh, Olmstead, the uh, famous architect, designed a lot of our park systems and parkways here in Louisville. And we're really lucky that we have places like Iroquois Park, which is absolutely beautiful, Cherokee Park, Shawnee Park, Seneca Park, uh, and all of these parks pretty much intersect through our parkway systems uh, designed by Olmstead. Um which is really cool because all these parkways are lined with trees and they're beautiful and you could ride, you could start at one park. We used to do the ride with me and my friend. We would ride from Iroquois park, ride out to Cherokee park via Southern parkway into Eastern parkway, hit that and then come back. And it was a nice old trek, about a 25 mile ride. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, that helps for people that are just kind of dipping their toe in, you know, it is friendly. We now we're getting these bike lanes and, you know, there's a push to kind of make it a friendly city for bicyclists, uh, which if you've ever been on a bike through the city, uh, that's important uh, because people can be assholes. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, I had somebody clip my back tire uh, while I was at, at a, at a light, you know, and I was abiding by the the stoplights and not trying to be a jerk and, you know, be like, I'm riding in the street, but I'm not going to follow the rules, you know, so it, it comes with its, it's, you know, things that you deal with like anything yeah. else. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that while you were saying that, I was like, yeah, this is a good city for somebody who's kind of a noob uh, where I wonder if you're somewhere where it's like super outdoor oriented, like Washington or Colorado, if they're going to be so like, welcome on in, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah, for like sure. we've been riding bikes out here since we were two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's how we get everywhere. Um, so I, th- I feel like it's a unique, a unique spot. And I'm really grateful that we, we have all these wonderful parks in this park system just to give the listeners a little bit of history. Cause I, I love what we have as far as that's concerned. Um, yeah. I am curious Cause I heard you say that you've been in the emergency room. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question before I forget it. So <laughs> hearing the other things that you're into the scuba diving, that can be dangerous. Uh, and, and I'll have you explain that in a second and the riding of the bikes. It seems like a lot of these things are kind of thrill seeking and you talk about rock climbing. You can come to that in a minute too. I'm curious how that correlates to, the desire to be in the emergency room as a nurse. Was there, was there a draw to that because you like that and then you feel like you're able to keep your calm? Like if you're diving in a cave, uh, as you told me before we started, you said there are certain caves you dive in that are so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face and you're underwater and you don't know where you're going. You're mapping out new caves. Do you feel like that same ability to keep your cool, to keep your calm, is why you feel so comfortable in the emergency room. Um, I definitely think that 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 definitely allows me to um, perform a in a better way. Um, I think that that one hundred percent translates into like the ER. Um, I when you know when you're in nursing school, you have to do clinicals in every little area as far as med surge, ICU, um, the ER, of course, outpatient stuff. And the only thing that ever spoke to me was the ER. And mostly because 
you don't know what you're getting. So there's always a surprise of what comes in. Um, in addition to a lot of the time you're expected to perform um, in a very hostile environment, um, but you need to perform as though, you know, you have to keep your calm and keep your cool. Um, and that appealed to me on a level that, you know, definitely relates to the cave diving, the climbing, all this other extreme stuff that, um, you know, I, I participate in. And so, um, I think that it, and I've seen it firsthand. A lot of people come into the ER and just don't, don't enjoy that level of, there is a level of stress that, that comes with it for sure. Especially when you've got somebody who's very, very sick and you're not, you know, you're having to essentially anticipate what is going to come next and like what to do in addition to just you're working as a whole team amongst other people. So you're having to make sure that everybody's on that same plane of, um, keeping their cool. Um, you know, cause when you're messing with other people's lives, it's, it's kind of important, you know, to make sure that you're, uh, performing the best that you can be. And a lot of people don't and in that environment, and that's cool. Like, you know, there's something for everybody. Um, you know, the burnout rate and, and, and is so high in the ER, um, just because people like the idea of it and come in because the scheduling is a lot is, is very cool for the ER because we have a lot of weird schedules where a lot of the other hospitals are pretty much, or uh, sorry, units are just pretty much 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So you're either day shift or night shift, whereas the ER is like really cool because it's like, it's based on when we're busiest, which can vary. And so like we've got, you know, 11 to 11, 7a to 7p, 3 to 3. We've got three eight-hour shifts, like like just a bunch of weird stuff. Um, and so people see that as like, a, oh, that's really cool that they do that and uh, but come in and just get burnt the heck out. And, uh, you know, after a year, they're like, I don't even know if I want to be a nurse anymore. And it's like, no, no, no. I think you just maybe just try something different, you know, um, and, uh, you know, being in charge, you know, I see this a lot. I see, you know, where I'm having to, you know, talk people off the bridge a lot and whatnot. So yes, I think that, you know, coming back to the question, it 100% translates uh, me being in the ER to a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, because I enjoy that, that hostile environment and having to perform at my best. And for me, that's where the challenge is, right, is to be able to do that. And um, that's what I enjoy. I like being in uh, not necessarily the excitement, but the intense environment that is the ER. So, yeah. Yes. I'd say there's probably a strong correlation to riding a uh, cliff, you know, as, as it is, or climbing a cliff that for that matter, or being in a cave where you don't know if there could be a collapse on you, not to stress you out the next time you do this. <laughs> uh, but I was, as you were in your introduction, that connection just kind of came to my mind. I was like, I, I could see the correlation there that I think that there's a personality type within you that kind of seemed to make sense when you were saying all that, I was like, this makes total sense. Yeah. But I do have a question based off of that. Since you got into the nursing bit there, I'm always curious as to what is the craziest shit you've ever seen uh, in your, your tenure there thus far. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's at least a few things that come to mind. 
Bring the em. one I don't really like to talk about a lot because it's it's more on the sad side um, of dealing with uh, we see. So in the ER, especially where I'm at now, you know, we see a lot of the stuff with, as you can expect, pediatrics is a lot more difficult um, or yeah. is, is more difficult a lot of the time. Um, not, you know, saying that, you know, seeing um, adults and stuff pass away and stuff is, is not difficult, but it's something about pediatrics, you know, that's a lot, lot more difficult. Um, but, um, you know, I've seen things from, you know, gunshot wounds to people's organs and stuff hanging out. Um, stuff that is the, I like the, the stuff that I like to talk about is stuff that had like good, well, better outcomes. Right. Um, so like, you know, on July 4th, it's always an exciting day to work. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen people with these, I don't know where they get these fireworks, but, uh, you know, literally blown three fingers off. Like they just have, their fingers are gone. They come in and just we're like, well, where are your fingers at? Cause sometimes, you know, they can actually, uh, get you to surgery and put them back on. They're like, I have no idea. We're like, Oh, okay. Um, I've seen, um, uh, some, you know, adults with a gunshot wound, um, to the head and was like awake and hanging out. And we're just all like, you know, as you can expect in amazement and just kind of like, what's going on here. And, uh, he, just the way the bullet came in and whatnot was, was just totally normal. Um, for, for him, I guess. And, um, I'm trying to think, I always try to think back to like, what has I seen recently? Um, you know, we pull a lot of people out of cars, drug overdoses is a lot, is a, is a big one we see right now. Um, I'm trying to think I had just the other night, I had a woman who, um, she was driving and, uh, she fell asleep, had her kid in the car with her. And, uh, luckily the kid was totally good, totally fine. Came in, was chipper, but she had stopped the airbag with her hand and had, um, three, what we call compound fractures. So meaning the bones are out and, uh, her index middle and thumb fingers were all open fractures and, uh, she couldn't look cause she would, she would get sick and throw up. She said, so she's, so we're trying to do what's called a digital block on her hand to numb like those digits so that the doctor can pull them back into place. And, uh, it looks very barbaric when you're doing it, you're trying to pop these things back into place, but that's how it is. And luckily we got all three of them back into place and then, uh, had to sew them up a little bit. Cause the, as you can expect, the bone's pretty sharp and, whatnot but um that was uh that's the most recent exciting thing i've had in the last week or so um that's but I, haven't, well. I haven't done my three days of work just yet so we'll, <laughs> s- we'll see what happens this week well let's hear let's hear an uplifting one i want to hear um, that yeah so um let's see um so i used to work at a level one trauma center uh, when i worked downtown and that was by far the the best place that i could work and uh as far as you know um, we, the volume's higher, the acuity is higher. Um, and, um, it's hard to say like a lot of like, I can tell you the uplifting stuff is that's nice is when, um, we get somebody, we get, it always comes back to kids for some reason or another, but we get a kid that comes in, um, 
whether it be co-sleeping or something. And we, we actually, um, they come in not breathing, you know, fully resuscitating this, this kid. And, uh, typically it's, you know, an infant less than six months old usually. Um, and, uh, we end up, uh, doing the full resuscitation efforts, get the kid back. Um, this happened shortly after it was pretty traumatizing. That's why I remember it, but it happened shortly after I'd started nursing probably four years ago. And, uh, we, we, this kid came in, was co-sleeping, we got the kid back, we did all the stuff and we got him up to the ICU. Um, and no, no joke, the, about three years later, they had brought us on the, and apparently they'd done it the two years prior, but on the anniversary that that happened, you know, they brought in, they bring, they buy food for the entire department. They buy flowers and all, like it's a huge deal that every year they bring back and they're like, you know, you you guys like literally saved this kid's life and and like the kid walks in and is like handing out candy and stuff to everybody. So, you know, that's where you're kind of like, you know, this job is pretty cool, you know, and, and, um, there's, there's some things like that. People bring gifts a lot of the time. Um, a pretty sad story, but, um, it, 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 this is sad, but uh, this is another good one. I promise this is a good one. I I don't mean to take up a whole lot of time, but this (laughs) one just came to mind. Um, I had a woman, um, and it was a husband and wife who had a kid, um, just, I mean, he was maybe three days old. The infant was, and, um, I was taking care of them and, uh, the baby was just sleeping more often, just wasn't acting totally right. I know it's weird for an infant, like most of them, well, if you're lucky, we'll sleep a lot, but she was just like, you know, something's not right. Um, we did a bunch of scans and stuff and determined that might end up having, um, possible tumor. And that's really devastating, right? That's hardcore. Like, holy cow, man. Well, it turns out like, you know, I'll go into the room, the mother's hysteric. Like well, the mother's actually with the dad there um, was, was pretty calm and cool. Um, but the dad, they were going to stay the night in the hospital as you can expect. And so the dad's like, I need to go home. I need to, we need to get stuff um, as far as staying the night and, you know, just want to make sure that's okay. I'm like, yeah, that's totally cool. Um, you know, we'll, we'll make sure we're here and, and taking care of her and everything. And, uh, the dad walks out and the mother just crumbles, like, almost as like, uh, the, the dad, you know, the, the, her husband was her support guy and she didn't want him to see how upset she was. And she just is crying and, and hysterical as you would expect. Right. And the worst part was that it turned out that this was the second child that they had that was diagnosed with a brain tumor and the first child had passed away. And so, uh, I mean, it's like when you just, like when I, I was trying to, you know, just genuinely sit and listen and talk. And like, when you're faced with that, you just have to be like, I cannot even begin to imagine what you are feeling right now. But if, how can I help you? Like, what can I do right now? And really at that time, she just needed somebody to talk to, you know, and those are the most difficult times. But, uh, something that came from that was um, I, that was shortly before I moved to the new ER that I'm at now. Um, I got a text from one of the pe- my coworkers I worked with and that mother had came and brought me um, uh, some like chocolate stuff and some flowers and stuff and a card that was very, very nice. And, you know, basically it said they determined that the, uh, what they thought was a tumor was not a tumor. And, uh, but, you know, just an appreciative, like, thank you for talking to me and stuff. And again, those are the things that you're just like, yeah, this, this job's pretty cool sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's the things you deal with. And, and so as you can expect, like I said, the burnout rate can be super high. It's yeah. typically high stress, but it's just being able to, to deal with that. And, and you have to think on your feet. A lot of the time you can, you can be in the same 
situation so many times, but you have to do things differently and just being creative is important. So anyway, that's, that's the ER stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to dive too much more into that, but yeah, that's the, the ER stuff. No, it's, it's certainly interesting. And, you know, I appreciate, um, you know, hearing someone who seems to be right for it, you know, and I, I'm glad to know that uh, I, I've had some bad situations with hospitals uh, there's a lot of, uh, issues that arose for my father from improper, um, improper treatment at the hospital. Um, they gave him the wrong medicines, which induced heart attacks. There was a lot of different things that kind of led to his death, um, directly related to things that happened at the hospital, you know, and I'm not going to hold that. I would never hold it against everyone. Uh, but I'm certainly glad to know that there's nurses that, you know, seemingly, are in it for the right reasons and seemingly um, seem to be competent. <laughs> so yeah. I'm appreciative yeah. of that, you know? Yeah. So it, it's a difficult thing. A lot of the times when you, I, I do a lot of like precepting for new nurses and stuff. And I'm absolutely huge about like, imagine this. And I know this is going to be cliche as I'll get out, but like, I'm very, very close to my grandma and I love her to death, love her so much. And when I take care of other people, I just always associate, well, what if this was my father? And what if this was my grandmother? And like, just actually imagine like, if this was your grandmother and you were the, another nurse, like, how would you want them to treat you? And that's just, that's just how you should be, you know, just, uh, I know it's cliche, but like treat others how you want to be treated, period. Like, yeah. and you know, if we can just be good people and, and thorough, um, it goes a long way, you know? Um, and I think we live, especially in nursing culture. Um, I don't, again, I don't want to dive a whole lot into this, but, um, we, the culture of nursing is very against, uh, admitting when you don't know something, like everybody expects you to know something. And like, that's a huge problem that needs to be, you know, constantly addressed is like, it's okay if you don't know something and it's okay to tell a parent or a patient or whoever that maybe you don't know, but Hey, let me go find out real quick. That's okay. Like, don't, just uh, give a um, you know, some kind of bullshit answer or um, something you know that just comes off the top of your head. Like, just if you don't know something, that's okay. Like, I think that's the problem with a lot of stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that you know everybody's afraid to admit they're ignorant on something, and and ignorance really it just means you don't know yet. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if you continue to be ignorant, if you know you're ignorant about something, you continue to walk around ignorant about it, which so much of it can be rectified by the very fact that we can carry the, the compendium of human knowledge in our pocket and people still run around. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> you, you know, you don't know. And you didn't look it up. Yeah. You know, and you know, in the educational profession, you know, I think that that, that is problematic with a lot of teachers and professors and things of that nature. You see it often in college professors where they get students that are absolutely brilliant. I think if you're at somewhere like, you know, some of the top universities in the country, Harvard, MIT, uh, depending on what you're looking for, Ox, uh, Oxford, you know, you should expect at some point that there's going to be a student that walks through that door who's much smarter than you are. And that's OK. That's yeah. OK. Yeah. And, and it's so often these these people like it's it is kind of their job to be like the smartest person in the room. I get that. Uh, but I. I just teach high school. And if I had a kid who comes in, who's smarter than I am about a certain thing, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to take that to heart. I'm not going to be like, damn, I'm, I'm going to be kind of impressed. I'm like, damn, good for that kid. You know, mm -hmm. sure, <laughs> I had yeah. a couple kids come in that are pretty sharp and I'm like, good for them. Yeah. You know, I'm not mad. 
you know, and politicians there. I think that that just runs rampant uh, as humans in general. I think it's a, it's a pride thing. It's just that it's that eight brain stuff. You know, we don't want to admit that there's somebody else in this tribe of life that's better than we are. And it's yeah. okay. Yeah. So I did have another question um, about you biking. Uh, yeah. You know, I know that's kind of going backwards, <laughs> but you know, um, the conversations do what they do, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm curious, where are some of the best places, the, the most memorable places that you've ridden? Cause you talked about all these picturesque things and I can tell you people uh, that are listening, I'm going to share his Twitter or not Twitter, uh, his Instagram so that you can see some of the stuff that he does. It's one of my, my delights to see a, the comics that you're reading and B to see the places that you're writing. So what are some of the most memorable places that you've ridden? All right. So top, we're going we're to go top three because I, I have this conversation a lot. And so uh, number one, there is a, um, there is a trail called the whole enchilada. It is a, what they call an Epic. Um, and uh, what's it, that mean? So an epic is typically means it's like usually like more than 20 miles. Okay. Um, it's, it's, that's the loose way of describing it, but typically it means it's like a, a world-class, like if you ride bikes, you need to do it kind of deal. Uh, and there's a bunch of them out there, like, you know, all over the world, a lot of them in the U S but the, um, it's, it's one of the, I think top three epics, um, in the world. Uh, it's called the whole enchilada and it's in Moab, Utah. And, um, it is, if the way it works is, um, you shuttle up to the top of the, um, sand, the accessible road within the San Juan mountains, just outside of Moab. And you then ride, you, you climb another 1500 feet or so on the bike and you spit you out right at the top of, um, the trail, um, for the whole enchilada. Um, I can't, there's an actual trail name for it, but I can't think of what it is. It's a series of connecting trails that essentially you take. Um, but from there you descend a total of 8,000 feet back down into Moab. And it is the most unbelievable experience when you are riding from the, uh, you're around, I think 11,500 feet in the San Juan mountains and you, you end up making it all the way down to 4,000 feet, um, at, uh, in Moab after you ride back into town and, uh, ends up being about 35 miles total. And the, the views from the mountains from Porcupine Rim, um, and all the way down, is just literally unbelievable. If you YouTube, there's a, uh, in a company called Envy, E-N-V-E, did this fantastic video um, on the whole enchilada. It's like six minutes long. It is worth your time uh, if you have any interest in cycling at all um, to check that video out because it is, if you ride mountain bikes, you'll it'll go to the top of your list. Um, but that one is uh, probably number one. Number two is uh, there's a trail in Crested Butte, uh, Colorado uh, called Dr. Park that is it with it given like short distance wise, probably the most fun I've ever had on a bike. There's this three and a half, four mile section of, um, I compare it to those like street losing guys, the guys that lay back on those, like, I don't know, skateboards or whatever. And they lose down the little tunnels and stuff that imagine like doing that on a bike for like 
like almost four miles at like 30 miles an hour. Like it's, it's unbelievable how smooth and how fast it is. Um, but that one you work for it. Cause it's like, I think the total loop is like 22 miles and you're going to, you climb like 2,800 feet up to the top eventually yeah. when you finally make it to the top. Uh, and then you descend all the way down. And when, um, I did that trail last, let's see, I did it in September, uh, for my wife's birthday and well, she didn't ride it. She let me do it for her birthday. How, how nice <laughs> is she? <laughs> Kudos to her. Um, but I had smashed my derailleur hanger, um, with like a mile and a half to go. And luckily it was all downhill. And I, I was just, I couldn't pedal or anything cause the derailleur is just hanging back there, but, uh, it was all downhill and I was just like letting my bike clank and make funny noises all the way down. But dude, like I'm telling you that trail is so insanely fun. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to believe. Um, number three that I have ridden personally, um, to, that's a hard one. <laughs> Um, probably a tiger mountain, um, in Washington. Um, there is a trail called, oh man, what's it called? I can't even remember what it is. It's a double black diamond, super gnarly trail. It's more of the story that goes along with it of why it's probably one of my favorite, but, um, I'd went and, um, I was climbing Rainier that year and had met a friend, a guy who I'm good friends with now called his name's Jeff and he rides mountain bikes and does all things cool. And, uh, he was like, Hey man, um, you want to ride a bike while you're in town? I was like, yeah, sure. Let me see what I can get up, pick up on the rental bikes and uh called the company and they were like yeah we got something i was like well i don't want anything super expensive i just want you know some nonchalant full suspension whatever the cheapest full suspension bike i'll take it they said okay i go in and i pick it i go to pick it up and they're like oh we actually don't have that bike so just pick whatever bike you want in here and of course like i went to the most expensive full <laughs> suspension bike that i could find and uh and luckily i did because we went and did this trail. Um, I wish I could remember the name of it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if you type in tiger mountain, double black diamond, it's the only one that pops up and it's just, uh, I, it was at the very tip top of my skill level. And I had a bike with a ton of travel and was just literally hanging on. Like I, I was choosing the wrong lines the entire way, but because I had a bike with so much travel, I was like, so just what is mashing through this? What does that mean? I'm going to stop you and I understand what's the wrong line mean. Um, all right. So good, good, good point. So imagine when you are riding a bike, um, uh, or let's, I'm trying to think how to correct it. Um, like it's essentially you're choosing where on the trail you want those tires to land or ride through. Um, and you try to do that in a way that is the most efficient and the smoothest, right? And that can be, uh, a relative term smooth. Um, but you want to, you <laughs> yeah. want to, Exactly. A double yeah, right. black diamond, nothing's probably smooth. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you want to ideally do it in a way that, you know, you keep your momentum going. Um, you learn a lot of how to ride a bike from a hardtail. Um, that's why it's always good for, I recommend everybody to start out on a hardtail because when you, when you jump to a full suspension, like I was just saying, there's so much more forgiveness and you can like literally just be going super, super fast and not choosing your line efficiently and it doesn't matter because you're on a full suspension bike whereas on a hardtail because you don't have that suspension in the back you feel when you make mistakes and don't choose the right line so um all that what i mean by like more travel also is means like the travel of the suspension so like you, you know uh depends on what kind of bike you're riding i think this was an enduro rate uh 
category type bike. And so it had something like 170 in the front and like 150 in the back, which is, um, which is quite a bit. It's, it's the, the level before you jump up to what they call like a, a downhill mountain bike, which has like what they call a double crown front fork, which is like what you see on dirt bikes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was, a, it was a fun bike. Um, so is and, the 170 and the 150, are those like millimeter measurements? Correct. Yeah. So that's okay. one step. And, and that means like 170 front, 150 rear is what that means. Okay. Um, and then, so we'll, that we don't completely lose listeners, double black diamond is going to be in reference to the hardest, uh, level of, uh, of riding of a course or whatnot. And they do the same thing in skiing, right? Isn't it double black mm-hmm. diamond and skiing? Exactly. So yeah. Same kind of rating. So that yeah. people just kind of know trying to keep them, keep them. Yeah. You're talking some stuff that I don't know <laughs> and I've yes. ridden as well, but I'm more yeah. on the road bike and I still don't know that much about it. Honestly, yeah. I just like riding it. So, um, yeah. So yeah, you have like green circle. Most people just say green, but yeah, you have green circle, you have blue square, and then you have black diamond, which is, you know, single black diamond and then you have double black diamond. And then I think there's something else that's pretty crazy. That's, I don't even know. Dynamite. I think it turns it. Yeah. Dynamite. That would be cool. Like, and it's like red or something. I don't yeah. know, man. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, in uh, in the trails, man, I'll tell you like what a, a black diamond in Kentucky is not a black diamond in Colorado. Like it's all relative. Um, yeah. A lot of the, the blue stuff in like out West is very much black diamond stuff here. So um, it's uh, it's all like, cause you know, if Colorado, if they, in like these other places, if they were like, Oh, based on how this trail is, this is a black diamond. Um, there would be only black diamond trails for the majority of all the trails there. And so, you know, it kind of limits what people are able to ride for the most part. So, and a a trail is rated on, my understanding is that it's rated on the most difficult feature within the trail. So you could have 95% of that trail be nice and smooth, but then there's like a two foot drop that you have to do. And then that makes it like a black diamond kind of deal. So, okay. you know, so just a lot of the times people are like, Oh, I can't do that. That's a black diamond. It's like, well, you know, you just walk this one section of it. No big deal. Um, it's, and there's no shame in that, you know? Yeah. So, so the, the tiger, the tiger, tiger one, tiger mountain, that, it was memorable because it was so difficult. Yeah. And it was because like I went, it was like this, um, this really quick, like I just come up, come down from Rainier. Um, I d- had never met this guy personally. I knew him through mutual friends. Um, and was like, Hey, if you want to, you know, ride a bike real quick, let's, you know, let me know. I called the shops and like picked up a bike super off the whim. And, uh, we were like, we went and did this. It's a crazy climb. Like, I mean, it was, it was like a, only like a four mile climb, but it was all uphill, like on some gravel service road up to the top. Um, and, uh, it was memorable because I can remember just literally holding on to that bike for dear life. And I knew something bad was coming when I saw Jeff up ahead of me stopped looking back to make sure I didn't like wreck myself when I come down or did some drop or whatever. And so like, as soon as he saw that, Oh, he didn't die cool. Like he would keep going. <laughs> so, um, that's why that, cause at the time I'd only been riding bikes probably for over a year, it's maybe a couple of years at that point. Um, so that was, like I said, at the very tip top level of my, like, it was probably well above my, my, uh, training or my skill level, but because I had that bike with all that travel, I was able to muddle through the entire trail. Um, so yeah, it's, it was, uh, it was a good time though. Um, 
the the stuff out there in Washington is is so beautiful. You know, it's like this lush rainforest, ancient moss covered stuff that's just fantastic. It doesn't even matter if it rains; it's all nice and smooth, and um, you know, just just great stuff out there. Yeah, we uh, we traveled out to Seattle. Um, I went and stayed with my cousin. Uh, we didn't go to Mount Rainier, but we went to Glacier Lake. Uh, we went to, what is it called? The devil's pass. Uh, there's like the, the really tall expressway that passes over. I think it's called the devil's pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. Um, I would move out there tomorrow, uh, <laughs> either there or Colorado, just two of my favorite places on the planet that I've been to. Yeah. Just so beautiful, just beauty. Un. It's pretty here. Uh, I, I know you get kind of jaded with the place that you're used to seeing because uh, the green that we have here in Kentucky is dramatically different from the green out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say the bluegrass, you look you look at the grass and you don't go, it's not blue. Well, it kind of is. Like when, mm-hmm. you, when you go out there and you see what it looks like out there and you get to go to the, the different places, I think it does help me appreciate the beauty of my own home. Um, you know, more when I get out, you know, because I understand how different other places can be. Mm-hmm. And if somebody were to come visit and this was all new to them, there is a ton of beauty here. And if you do get the benefit coming back to Louisville, being lucky with where we are, if you go up to the top of Iroquois Park and you look out over the city, it's a green city. It's really green. Mm-hmm. Like we are very lucky to just have such a lush city. Um, and I'm thankful for that because, you know, you go somewhere like a concrete jungle, like, New York city where the only, only green in the whole city is central park, you know, mm-hmm. realistically, you sure. know, uh, Washington DC is kind of that way. Uh, they do, you know, of course you have the Japanese cherry blossoms, uh, that are there, uh, that, you know, were gifted to us. And, uh, but overall it can be kind of a concrete jungle as well. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I was curious to hear those, those rides because I know that you've been all over the place. So I was just curious as to how those worked out for you. Um, I'm glad that you had your friend, Jeff, who wanted you to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a great dude. Yeah. So I'm glad you made through that. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> the voice has seen better days. So I am curious to see, and or hear about some stories that are related to the scuba diving. Um, so with you having so many different things, I'm just going to kind of run down the list of this and do this a little bit different because uh, I think it'd be interesting to hear what's one of the scariest moments you've had uh, in a scuba diving situation in a cave. Um, yeah. So as you, well, there's been a lot um, and you know, the, and yet the, you continue to do it. I know <laughs> um, it's, it's such a interesting thing to, it's a long process to get to, um, to the point, like I, I by no means am trying to, I don't know, brag or, or anything, but it's, it is a lot of work and other cave divers will tell you the same thing. It is a lot of time and uh, training and money that it takes to get to the point of, you know, what we call full cave certification where you are, you know, also actively exploring that's its own thing in and of itself, you know, 99% of cave divers only dive caves. Uh, that 1% is the ones who actually explore and lay the line in the caves. And so, um, to understand the story I'm going to tell you, it's important to kind of have a little bit of a, uh, basic understanding of what it means like to go dive in a cave. And so, um, for cave diving. So it's, um, you know, first, obviously you gotta get 
you gotta get scuba certified, right? That's uh, typically just a confined water class that you do in a pool. Uh, then you go to the open water class and you do that at a quarry or some warm, warm water somewhere in, in Kentucky. Typically you're going to a quarry um, and you do all the same skills you did in the pool, but you do them in water. And then after that, you're open water certified. Fantastic. Um, I did my closed water class at, when I was at UK, me and my older brother did it. We both went to UK and uh, we did it as our, I don't know, which is some kind of elective that fit the bill for some kind of thing we had to do. And we were like, yeah, hey, it's scuba diving. That's cool. So we did that. Um, and then we both went down to Florida, North Florida, near Gainesville. And we dove in these two different places. One was called um, the Devil's Den and the other one was called Blue Grotto. And it was Blue Grotto that um, wrecked my financials for the next many years because I saw it, Blue Grotto had this cave it was kind of a, at the time it's weird politics stuff, but it was a secret type cave deal um, that I saw these two guys with this crazy gear on, you know, multiple tanks and different crazy stuff, big, huge lights go into this cave and disappear. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, I want to do that. You were ruined. And, I was ruined, man. I tell you what, like from that point on, I started knocking out all these training things for the open water, um, all the way up to dive master. I did that. I helped teach classes for a little bit um, while I was in Lexington um, and uh, continued to just kind of, you know, rack up the dives because um, there's not exactly a minimum number of dives you have to have to start your cave training, but there's a, 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 recognized uh, minimum that you should have. And it's typically somewhere around a hundred or so. Um, but I did a lot of training. I, I was fortunate enough. There was a lot of what we call technical divers in the dive shop that I was um, hanging out at. And uh, I, they let me kind of practice with two tanks instead of one. So like, that's the first and foremost thing with cave diving. You have to, you dive with two tanks instead of one. Um, any technical diving aspect is going to always have two tanks. Um, and uh, I practiced with them and whatnot. They were also, some of them were cave trained and, as, and whatnot as well. It had been for a while. Um, so I start, you then go from that point, you go into what we call cavern training, which is where you learn to dive in a, the entrance part of a cave. So where you can still see sunlight. Um, after you pass that class, you go into what's called intro to cave, where you start going a little bit into the cave. Um, the biggest difference between um, that is that, you know, you now are going into the cave um, with your air supply. You can use what they call one sixth of the tanks uh, air that it has. So um, you typically would use one sixth of the tank in one, uh, one sixth of the way out. And then you have, you know, four sixths uh, in reserve. I know that that's not the right fraction, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and because there, it's everything's big about redundancy with caves, like uh, with with cave diving, you always have to have like two to three of every single thing in case it fails. Right. Um, after you do intro, you then go up to apprentice um, and then full cave. And there's just different variations. I won't dive into between those two. But finally, once you do full <laughs> I cave, you did there. <laughs> you said uh, into. <laughs> I get it. Um, so once you get up to full cave, you're like a full blown cave diver. It's awesome. You can go dive into caves. Um, the difference, the biggest difference is uh, the generally accepted is you use one uh, third of your air supply going in. You use one third coming out with leaving one third uh, for reserves, right? In case anything happens. And that's the bare minimum you should use. I will tell you 
when shit hits the fan, you will wish that you had more than one third of your reserve left. Um, many of things can happen. Um, and when you can imagine when stuff goes wrong, you're not, your breathing rate is not what it normally is. So you are consuming more air than you usually would. Um, so I typically have a different rule that I, I typically do about one, one fourth in one fourth out and then half kind of for reserve is typically what I end up doing. But if, if I am even questioning that I need more air, I just, I just add another tank or something. Um, so anyway, that's the gist. And now with the other thing that you have to understand with cave diving is that it's not just this free for all, like you just go wherever you want to the cave. There is a continuous guideline throughout the entire cave that's tied onto the rocks and stuff. Only single, it should be only one line. Um, and it's tied throughout the entire cave with little arrows that always point the direction out so that in case you can't see your mask breaks, uh, your lights go out or whatever you are, you have that line and you're feeling along that line and you feel it's, it's called like a line arrow. You fill that arrow and you follow that, um, that wrote that line all the way back out to the cave. And this is all stuff that you do in training, right? So at the full cave level, you've done this a bazillion times. You've exited the cave with no light and no mask and like all this crazy stuff. Right. Um, so wait, no mask. How does that work? So you can still breathe from a regulator with no mask. It feels very, very weird, but you 100% do not need your mask to breathe. Um, and I've had where a mask gets cracked um, and will start leaking and is almost otherwise useless. And you pretty much have, you just, it's easier to just take your mask off and you exit the cave at that point. Um, so how does that happen? You hit it on a rock or what? Could be. Yeah. Um, it could more, the more likely thing that happens is that it broke um, or cracked while you were gearing up and like somebody put a tank or something on it and you didn't mm. see it. And then you get into the, and it's fine, but then you smack into a wall or something and then it starts leaking. Uh. Um, that's, that's the way I've seen it happen more often. Um, you would have to hit, you know, something inside the cave pretty dang hard. I'm sure it's happened, but, uh, you, you, it, it takes a lot. I mean, it's tempered glass, you know, so it's pretty strong stuff, but it has happened. Um, but yeah, so you've done all this training stuff a million times, but the big, the most important thing I'm getting at is that there's a line throughout the entire cave um, for what we call tourist caves anyway. It's the ones that, you know, people just go and dive in for fun, right? Now, when you're exploring caves, there is no line in there until you put it in there, right? So it's very, very important you put that line in there. Um, me and a friend, uh, he's a helicopter pilot, um, uh, instructor actually for the army, great dude. And uh, we were diving a cave in Clarksville, Tennessee, um, super cool little cave. Um, and we were, it was, it's what we were, I kind of briefly talked about it before the, where we talked about sump diving, where you essentially go and you dive the cave under, it goes underwater and then it comes up into dry and then you survey and, and, uh, map the dry cave too, which is what I really enjoy doing. Um, and, uh, we went into this, it was only the underwater portion was maybe 800 feet, uh, long doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you're swimming a maximum of 50 feet per minute, it's a, you know, it's a pretty good little stint. Um, the, the caves that, you know, you typically are exploring stuff, the visibility is not usually that good unless you're down in like Florida and some of that stuff. Um, but that's again, another topic, but, uh, so we, um, getting finally to the story of one of the craziest things that's ever happened to me. We were diving this cave in, in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, and uh, we make it out to the, to the 
dry portion. So we swam, you know, around 800 feet underwater, get to the dry portion. We take all of our um, scuba gear off, all the tanks and everything off. And uh, we then put on our dry caving clothes. And uh, so we wear dry suits, meaning like, you know, you stay completely dry under the water. Um, so you don't get wet or anything. So then you peel your dry, you unzip it and you pull the dry suit off and you're dry. So then we surveyed for, I don't know, a few hours or something back there. Uh, and then inevitably you come back out to your stuff and you have to put it all back on and then exit the cave underwater. Right. Well, we, you know, laid the line coming in um, and you can see fairly good when you're coming in, but when you're coming out, typically what's happening is the water's going downstream and you're stepping in the mud and everything. So all that stuff is just getting stirred up and, and going the direction that you're going out of the cave. Right. But that's just, you anticipate that, you know, that's what you're getting into. You just hold on to the line and you go out. And so this was, you know, we've done this many a times, but no big deal. We get, we're put our gear back on. I let Ryan go ahead of me. He's like, yeah, uh, he's ready first. So he goes ahead of me and then I go behind him and we're going and we're going and we're going. And I feel like we are right pretty close to the exit. And all of a sudden I bump into Ryan and I'm like, we, we have regulators in our mouths. It's really, as you can imagine, difficult to talk underwater and I can't see anything. And I bump into him and I'm just like, okay, whatever. He's maybe stuck or something. You can't see shit. So whatever you run into stuff, I'm just holding on to the line, hanging out, hanging out. And then minutes pass and I'm like, all right, what, what's going on? So I try and get up closer to him and get to his face and he's, you know, babbling stuff. But like I said, I cannot understand what he's saying. And eventually he takes my hand and he puts it on his, where the line is. And I'm keeping my other hand on the line. Um, and, uh, he, he surrounds the rock where the line is supposed to be and the line's gone. And we're like, Oh man, uh, this is kind of a big deal. Like, um, you can't see shit. We're in a small, you know, maybe three by three passage. It's not that big. Um, where we typically, we have smaller tanks because this is a short 800 foot climb, but we have two of them. So can't, but you can't see anything. And I'm thinking, I still can't understand what's going on, but I feel, and I'm like, there's no line. So w are we on like maybe the wrong line or did like the line come off? And so I'm just still hanging out, letting him try to figure it out. And at this point in my head, I'm already thinking like, all right, worst case scenario, we turn around, go back to the dry portion of the cave, like where we were and we wait for his wife. We had a call out time right? If we're not out by a certain amount of time, she calls the proper, what we call the uh, NCRC, it's the National Cave Rescue Committee. And so, um, you know, most of us are part of that for this exact reason to be able to be called and say, hey, you know, Josh, we have a cave that flooded, we need you to come down um, kind of deal. And so we would just go back to the dry portion and wait. But um, it's one of those things that we were kind of like, well, my, in my head, I'm thinking, this, we ran a line all the way from the surface. Like this should take us directly right back out of the cave, but the line had ended right there. And the next thing I see is Ryan disappears off the line. And then I'm thinking, what is he doing? Like that's, you know, breaking golden rule number one. Like you don't, you don't do that. And uh, he disappears and I don't see him. And I wait there for what seems like forever, but it might've been five minutes. And I'm thinking like, what's going on. And he comes back down and he's like, he has a new reel in his hand and he reels it and ties it into that. And then he's like, come on. And, uh, the, the gist was that we were five feet from the exit 
and we couldn't see light. And like that, I want to, like I say that because it's important for you to understand how much we could not see. Um, we were five feet from the entrance, and there was no light coming through because of how much mud and particulate was in the water. And what had happened was these. Um, I don't know, these kids had come down and thought that there was a catfish attached to the line inside <laughs> there. And they just tugged and tugged and tugged and snapped it. And so, like I said, we were never in probably any real danger. Uh, Cause like I said, we were maybe five feet from the exit, but it was one of the scariest feelings in my life that I've ever had. Cause I thought at that po- moment, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, cause I can't see jack shit and Ryan just disappeared. And like I said, this, this whole thing maybe lasted 20 minutes, but it seemed like, and, and the entire time you're thinking, at what point do I need to turn around and swim back that 800 feet so that I have enough air and I can sit and hang out on the, on the, uh, in the dry portion? And how long am I going to be in there until somebody comes in and gets me? Yeah. So those are, those are all the things that, you know, you think about when, when something like that, luckily that has only happened to me uh, one time. I've lost the line in a cave a few times. Um, but I've never, that's the first time I've ever had that kind of deal happen. So I don't know uh, where you stand on the, uh, this series of next questions that I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you. Uh, but, uh, I'm a horror movie fan. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, I would, this would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you. <laughs> um, I imagine that these are probably some pretty spooky places, mm-hmm. these dark, damp, unexplored caves that you're going into have you ever experienced something once you got into like maybe the dry portion of the cave and or heard something or saw something that you couldn't explain in the cave that made you go hmm um unfortunately not son of a i know man i have so here's some, some cool stuff that we've seen is you will see like uh, footprints, not, fo- not, sorry, footprints from like an animal, not actual oh, okay. humans, from like what looked to probably be like a very, very old entrance that had, um, fallen in and was no longer like an entrance into the cave. And that's pretty bizarre. Cause you're like, man, there's an animal in here somewhere. Um, I have had a friend who was exploring a dry cave that there turned out to actually be a bear inside. And as you can imagine, that would be pretty exciting. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, our definitions of exciting are different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, I would uh, say terrifying shit my pants, you know, pull the, pull the ripcord, get me the fuck out of here. Type experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's about as cool. I, I saw a, catfish that had to be i don't know five six feet long one time when there was no reason for that catfish to be back there you know thousand feet in this cave and that was the closest i'd ever gotten to thinking that there was a legit monster that was about to get me the catfish didn't actually care about me at all but it scared the shit out of me (laughs) you're underwater you can't see and it's like bumping into you you're like what is happening yeah and you choose this is what you do for fun yeah, man. Very it's, strange. Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'll go on the Ni- frozen Niagara tour of Mammoth Cave and be just fine. There you uh, go. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, there are some, one of the coolest things that has ever happened was um, there, or like, I, I feel like I've, that's the worst thing that's ever happened. One of the coolest things that's happened is um, when you see something that's like utterly mind blowing, like there's a cave um, in this, in uh, Missouri in what's called, it's called uh, Lake Wapapello. The cave itself is called Cannonball. But uh, it's really cool cave. Like you go down through this brown, nasty um, lake water until you reach the spring. And then it just gets all clear. It's beautiful. And you go through this cave for about 500 feet until you reach this pit that is maybe 300 to 400 feet wide. And like, in, like imagine this circle that's a pit that's like 300 feet wide and uh, you're talking maybe 100 feet tall and the pit goes down from like 70 feet down to, if you get to the bottom, I've not been to the bottom, I think uh, over 300 feet. And to be able to hover over this is like otherworldly, like is, is like you're practically in space at that point. Um, I mean, that it's words can't like, I cannot tell you how cool this is. Like, I wish that I could, again, this is, I wish I could take that feeling that you get from hovering over this 300 foot pit and like, so what do you mean hovering? Cause I'm in swimming cause I'm in water. Right. So this is an underwater pit and I'm like literally just hovering over top of this pit, like free floating okay. um, over this pit. That's just, it's a, you know, fully underwater cave, you know? And so it's, you're just swimming and uh, all of a sudden the, the cave starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then bam, this insane, unbelievable pit. That's just you, you, they have the way they have it set up is they have a rope down through the middle of it. Mm-hmm. that allows you to um, go from the top of the ceiling, which I think if you're at the very top of the ceiling, it's about 40 feet and it will take you all the way down to 200 feet and you can just descend. And one of the coolest things is to watch other divers from the top st- um, descend down to the pit. And they have, you know, we have these super fancy, really bright lights that we use and uh, just watching them descend down this pit. is just, just, it's just remarkable, man. It's, I can't express like how cool of a feeling that is. Is it, is it deep enough that you have to take precautionary measures for how quickly you emerge back Mm -hmm. up and okay. Yeah. 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 So, you know, um, you, you can have, depending on the certain dive, you know, um, I've got friends that, uh, that do dives where they have what they call a habitat, meaning like they have a, um, a, imagine, you know, you take a cup and you put it underwater, you know, how there's air in the top of the cup. They fill up a PVC material with air and they sit in that habitat for 12 hours because they have to decompress. Oh, um, Jesus. And I mean, how like, deep do you have to go for that to be necessary? Um, well, typically it's not necessarily how deep as much as it is, how long you're that deep. And so, ah. you know, these guys are diving, 350 feet deep for an hour or so. And for that, they spend 12 hours at 40 feet in that habitat. They have a little iPad. They actually have ran uh, ethernet cables down. They'll do live feeds where they talk (laughs) about the dive. I mean, they've got it pretty set up. They've got people bringing them uh, uh, soup and and thermoses and stuff. Um, It's a really interesting cave that they do this in. um, It's a a cave called uh, Twin D's. Um, and, uh, they've, I've dove it, um, a couple of times and the way it works is they passed up on an opportunity to call that cave double D. 
how dare, <laughs> how dare they? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 this cylindrical entrance that you can't even have the tanks on you. You have uh, if you're diving what's called side mount, um, meaning that instead of the tanks being on your back, they're on your side. You can have one tank on your side, but to have both tanks on your side, that's just too wide. So it's imagine this this cylinder that goes down from uh, 10 feet down to 40 feet into what they call the changing room. And you slide down this tube well, with a tank on top of you and it's just pushing you down the tube. And then you get down to what they call the changing room, which is where that habitat is. And uh, that's where they change all their stuff and put it all on. And then they go into the cave further. Um, and you eventually get to, again, one of the coolest things I've seen is they call it the beach. And everything in this cave is named after uh, Lord of the Rings stuff. And um, so they, you get into what they call the beach and it's where it goes from like 130 feet down to the bottom. It's like 300 and it's just this black nothingness that just is unbelievable. Like you're like the, you shine your super fancy bright light and the, the darkness just eats it and you just, it's just utter black and you just, you descend down and eventually you make it down to the, to the 300 foot level. And, uh, typically when we do this, uh, like these kind of dives, you have what's called a scooter or, uh, the fan a diver propulsion vehicle DPV. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you clip it to your harness. Um, and then you, you know, turn the throttle and it's like, and it pulls you along. Um, and so then that actually the nice fancy ones can take you, you know, you swim at maybe 50 feet a minute. Um, the really fast ones can do like, I don't even know, man, 500 feet, uh, a minute. I mean, like, depending on how fast you actually want to go. I mean, like that's probably a little excessive, but you can, you can cover a lot of distance and with right. those deep and plus you're not using any type of, um, exercise to get there. Right. You're just holding on to this thing and it's pulling you through the water. So, um, so yeah, that's, they're exploring that cave and that's some pretty extreme stuff there. Um, they, they, they do a lot of crazy stuff too. I mean, you all do, all of yeah. you, uh, just so you know, um, <laughs> as, as a commoner on the outside listening to these stories, I'm just like, no, mm -mm. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not like a, uh, you know, I bungee jumped and, you know, I've done crazy stuff. I will skydive eventually. So I'm not one that shies away from crazy things, but uh, no, no, I'm not doing <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's cool, man. There's, there are a few things that parallel diving in general, like not even just cave diving, like just scuba diving. Like I've been, and my wife, she dives, but she doesn't cave dive or anything, but like we've dove some of the wrecks out in Key Largo and stuff. And that's just really, really cool too. Just, um, now that sounds know. fun. Cause yeah. you can see, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see what's in front of me. That sounds like a good time, you know, yeah. uh, you know, like, uh, checking out the coral reef. I would love to go to Australia and do that mm -hmm. uh, with the great coral reef and whatnot while it's still there. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, sharks or whatever, it doesn't really worry me that much when, you know, I can get my scuba gear and get up and get out and I'm not too far off. Now we'll say the deep re recesses of the ocean where it gets dark. You know, as soon as you come up out of that clear, beautiful, pretty water, and then it's the deep reset. No, I'm out, dude. Like, I'll be <laughs> like, when, yeah, I go to clear water and it's like you see the sandbar and the, the water's crystal clear. And then you get out and it's just like, oh, what? It's black. Is that water dirty? 
It's like, no, it's like 7,000 feet deep. That's all. <laughs> you know, there's a blue whale under there that could swallow me by accident. <laughs> like, yeah. No, I'm good. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> we did jet skis out there and uh, they, they don't prepare you for the salt water in your eye. I did not know how much of a factor that was going to be when you're splashing and ripping and racing on the open water. Yeah. And uh, at the lake, I'll take a jet ski at 70 miles an hour. I don't care. Yeah. That's fine. Doesn't bother me. I'm going. <laughs> Pulling water on pontoon boats, making people mad. It's fun. Yeah. On the ocean, you're lucky to do 25 because the waves and just the how heavy the water is. I, I imagine as you get out away from the uh, where it comes in, it's probably not as bad. Mm-hmm. But, dude, it just had salt water in my eye. was awful. I was yeah. like, I was not ready for this. I should have wore goggles. Yeah. You think the people at the rental place would tell you, hey, here's some <laughs> goggles. You're going to want these. Yeah. My sunglasses were not cutting it. I can tell you from diving in the ocean, my least favorite thing is a mouthful of salt water. <sighs> and it is, it is so difficult. I get motion sickness fairly easily too. And when we were diving on off of boats, I was, we were both super motion sickness and, uh, you know, once you got into the water, you were fine, but above the water, you're like throwing up all over the place and whatnot. But once you get underwater, you're good. You, you'll stop throwing up. Um, my wife had actually, she didn't want to do the second set of dives when we were down in Key Largo because she had been throwing up so much. So I did the second set of dives on my own. And, uh, um, like I said, I was throwing up all over the place when we were above water, but as soon as I dropped down underneath, I was totally fine. So did you, uh, try Dramamine or anything like that? Didn't help? You know, I did. And I learned that, um, if you're going to do Dramamine, you have to do it like well before you actually get on the boat. Like, and it actually will make it worse if you take it. Like, cause what happened was, is we went out on the boat and then realized, Oh crap. Like we are going to, we're throwing up all over the place. Got back to the shop. I bought some Dramamine, took it and then went back out. And then it was like infinitely worse. And I found out afterwards that like, that's definitely not the way to do it. So if you're going to do it, just take it. I think they recommend like a, if you can do it like a couple of days before taking it, like, I don't know if it's every eight hours or whatever it is, but like you essentially dose up before the actual time comes. So your body kind of acclimates. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I like to close these things out with talking about inspirations. Uh, dude, you're, <laughs> I could talk to you like a, a while because there's just so many interesting things that I know that you've done and that you're into. I think it's awesome. This has been a super cool chat, man. Um, but I like to close these out with inspirations. Uh, and that can be uh, things that have led you and with you doing all the things that you do, I think that we should frame it in the way of what has inspired you to be so outdoorsy, be so uh, stare in the face of danger. Was it somebody that you grew up with? Was it a, a parent? Was Did your father do the same kind of stuff? Your mom? Um, was there some grand event? I know you said you didn't grow up necessarily athletic, uh, but I don't know that, like you said, a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily athleticism uh, so much as having balls bigger than that room that you're sitting in uh, <laughs> to go out and stare some of this stuff in the face. So I'm curious, what inspired you on this path of danger? Um. I'm going to try and do my best to not rant on this because this is something I'm very in tune with, like, I don't know, spiritually and like mentally is like my headspace that I'm constantly in is, is all about inspiration and not, 
not necessarily like in myself, but like I find it through other people. And um, I think the best way I've come to explain it to some of the, some people, like when I've asked, been asked this question is um, like, where does my motivation come from? Right. And like, um, I think I, in my profession, I see day in, day out, um, you know, people dying, people that, um, you know, save their entire life for this retirement thing that they now will never get to actually use. And, um, and, and man, I know this is cliche and this is as cliche as it gets, but like, you are not promised tomorrow. Like, you, no matter what you think, I just read a news article on my way home, um, that, this 17 year old was hit by a car an oncoming car that somebody had stolen off Dixie highway on Dixie highway is right. Yeah. And and it's right in front of that gym. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like you are, you're literally not promised tomorrow and you need to, whatever it takes to, to live your life the way you want to live it. As long as you're not hurting other people, um, you know, just do what, moves you. And, uh, if you don't know what that is, keep searching because there's so much cool shit out there to do and to experience. Um, you just, you know, gotta, gotta get up there, get out there and do it. Like, and the, the other thing that like, I'm, if you look on my Instagram thing, it's the biggest thing that I say time and time again is talk is cheap, man. How many times do people want to sit and talk about doing something? And, and I just, I have low tolerance for hearing the same story over and over where people will say they're, this is what they're going to do. They're waiting for this day that they're going to do it. And I feel like um, you're attacking me right now as we're doing this podcast. This I is know, talking. man, <laughs> I know, just- <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing is it's like, I say this to a lot of people. I, there's a, there's a guy, he wrote an awesome book. You'd probably enjoy his name's David Clark. Um, and uh, he is a ultra, a very, very high, um, highly appreciated and, and, and um, recognized ultra runner, ultra endurance athlete that went from this fat slob drug alcoholic to losing weight, all this stuff, man, changed his entire life, changed countless other people's lives and died last year in a routine back surgery, you know? And it's just like, that one hit me. I met this guy one time and, uh, uh, and that hit me so hard because like, I'd met this guy one time, but yet he had like done all this, this craziness and and changed his entire life. And like, he was the, he was talk, he was walking the walk, you know, like he was doing things. Um, and, and, and I wish I could, I could, if you go through my Instagram, there's a post that talks about new year's resolutions and, and something that he had posted. And basically just talks about how, like, don't be that person that says tomorrow's the day, you know, that, that tomorrow's the day I'm going to start changing. Like that, that you're, you're essentially not giving the, um, your, your time to today. Like, you know, this, and we this do day. that as a people it's, and it's, it's interesting that it's at the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. If you've ever noticed that mm-hmm. oh, at the start of the next week, Monday, that's the day. That's the yeah. day I'm going to start it next month. I'll tell you what, the first of fucking February, I'm getting on it. And mm-hmm. then we're going to do, do the damn thing. The new year. Yeah. I'll tell you what, that's when it's going to be. And yeah. I don't know why that's a thing. Uh, I think it's probably like just the monkey brain of people. Uh, we like 
things that are round numbers, you know, like the 10 commandments and those types of things. Whereas like, if it had been 11 commandments, we wouldn't have respected it as much. That's yeah. a, that's a George Carlin bit, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there's some, there's some attribution to that and I, not to cut you off too much, but you saying what you're saying is so much of, of kind of echoing what my wife and I believe that we're moving to Turkey this year. Uh, we've gotten a job in uh, Ankara, Ankara, depending on who you talk to, they say it differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're moving to Turkey and we're going to teach. And we're doing that now. Because, Fantastic. Because I'm 38, she's 30, uh, 35, uh, we'll be 36. Uh, and we're doing that now because we want to enjoy the world while we can. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm like you, I want to go. And if I want to hike that mountain, I might not like climb into the Himalayas or do some crazy shit like that. But if I want to do some of the basic stuff, my body will still let me right now. If For I sure. wait until I retire, if I put off and that's, I think that's an ideology in America that we probably need to reformulate. We need to say to ourselves, what can I do right now? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't give a shit if I got $5 saved in the bank. Honestly, I I know that certain financial advisors are cringing right now. Now I have a 401k and all that. Sure. It's like, if I can spend every dime and go do the stuff I want to do right now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. If there's a comedian that comes through town, of course, this has changed since COVID, but my wife and I would go see him. We didn't Mm -hmm. wait. Oh man, I really wish we could have took off. No, I knew months in advance that thing was coming that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Make the plans to do it. Stop saying, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have went and seen that band. They were within a three-hour drive. It's your favorite band, and you didn't go see them. Why? Mm-hmm. We, we, we've got to change it. You yeah. know, We have to say, now is important. And like you said, I don't give a shit how cliche it sounds. It's one of the truest damn things that you can ever say. Mm-hmm. You are not promised anything except death. That's the only thing you know. Yeah, you know you were born, and you know you're gonna die. <laughs> you know all um, all I got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. As a yeah. country song from back in the day, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. You yeah, know, it and is, I, I'm totally with you. Sorry to derail you. Continue. No, man, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's it. Like it's uh, you're not promised anything, and I I see so many days where you know young people die and had probably had this whole uh list of things they anticipated doing and and maybe they just kept waiting until this certain day but you know this day that you're living right now is totally worth your time and uh you need to you know make use of it best that you can um and every i don't know that looks different for everybody and you know that doesn't mean tomorrow you're gonna go out and change the world that's not what that means like it means that you know tomorrow just make sustainable life changes that slowly get you to being, um, you know, the person that you want to be. And, um, you know, just make that change now, like stop waiting and just do it. Yeah. David Goggins on that same point, he had said, Mm -hmm. uh, in his, uh, road to coming back, he was a Navy SEAL. Uh, the dudes went on to do all kinds of crazy stuff, but he had gotten to a point to where he was so overweight and unmotivated that he went out to walk, walk a mile and he couldn't do it Mm -hmm. you know and he said okay but at that point he had kind of broken down and said enough is enough so he went back out the next day and walked it 
got a little further. Same thing. It was little by little. It wasn't these big things. You know, he wasn't like, I'm going to go out and run a hundred miles tomorrow. And I'm 320 pounds and I haven't done anything in a year. That's not going to happen. So you do, I think that you, you make a good point there. You have to be realistic sure. in what your expectations for yourself are. So say that I'm going to start doing this thing and then just put a plan in place. Yeah. You know, even if you're planning day by day, it doesn't have to be, I'm bad at planning like that, you know, but I can say for tomorrow, I'm going to do this. You yeah. know, I might not have the whole month mapped out, but for tomorrow, I'm doing that. Yeah. It start there. And just, yeah, I mean, just be realistic with yourself, set reasonable, you know, goals and, um, you know, just every day try to strive to be, you know, better than you were the day before. And, you know, you keep doing that for uh, a period of time and you then can look back and say like, wow, look at, look at that, look at who I was and look at where I am now. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing to do a lot of the time, but with time and, and just dedication, you know, it's crazy. And I know this, this whole conversation is somewhat cliche to a lot of people, but I guarantee you that there will be people that are listening that like, you know, that this is, this is stuff that they've thought about that, you know, they have goals and and things that they want to achieve and like keep trying to wait until some certain day or some certain pivotal achievement in their life that, you know, they're waiting on um, to make this happen. And I think that that's the the biggest mistake that you can do is just waiting for this, this perfect day to, to make these changes. Like just do it, man. Now, like right now. Yeah. And those correlations could be made in a lot of different ways. Uh, Stephen King talks about the, um, the issue of writers waiting for their muse. <laughs> He's like, don't. He's like, the thing you should be doing every day is read and write every single day. If you want to be a writer. He's like, like you, he's like, I know that that advice sounds cliche, but I don't give a shit. He's like, you go talk to a good writer, talk to damn near any good writer. What are they doing every day? They're reading and they're writing mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. They're reading something great from someone they love and they're writing something. Yeah. Not all of it's going to be good. Yeah. Not everything you're going to do physically, not everything you're going to do as a nurse, not everything you're going to do is going to be the best thing that you could have done that day. Not everything yeah. that I teach is going to be the best thing I could have taught the kids that day, but at least I'm showing up. And again, we're talking about just cliche after cliche. Uh, the biggest part is showing up. Mm -hmm. It's true. Okay. Yeah. It, it works because it's true. Yeah. You know, so I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. I, I think everything that you said um, is, is something that more people should take take into consideration. What, whatever that thing may be starting a podcast, riding a bike, uh, I know you said before the conversation and my listeners might not have been privy to this, but you said you didn't do so well in high school. Yeah. And then you really excelled once you got out of college. You didn't let that defeat you. It's way too early to let that happen. Yeah. 50 is too early to let it happen. For Don't sure, be defeated man. ever. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I love that sentiment. Any, anything else to add? Man, I don't think so. I could, easily go on and on about that whole thing and tell stories. And, but I have done a ton of cool stuff just because I didn't say no. And so like, you know, with, you know, this thing ending, you know, take advantage of any opportunity you come across and just be as open-minded as you possibly can ever be. And, uh, you know, say no, 
you know, less than you're saying yes and, and take advantage of whatever stuff, you know, you can while you can't because you're just, you're not promised tomorrow. That's a great sentiment to end this on, man. Josh, I appreciate your time, brother, and sitting down to take time and uh, share such a, a really interesting story. Uh, and I think that my listeners will be blown away by all the stuff that you've done and terrified. Uh, so buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you, brother. Cool, man. I really appreciate the, your time, man. Um, look forward to, uh, talking to talking to you more. Absolutely.